Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hi, everyone. I'm your host for today's episode, Tom Varghese. One of our goals on Same Surgeon, Different Light is to showcase the amazing origin stories of leaders in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. And today's episode won't disappoint as we connect with one of the giants in the world of thoracic surgery, Dr. Gail Darling. Dr. Darling has recently taken the mantle at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada as a head of surgery there as well as the head of surgery for the Halifax and Central Zone Hospitals. Her distinguished career has many notable leadership milestones, including undergraduate course director for the University of Toronto Medical School, residency program director for thoracic surgery at the University of Toronto, chair of the thoracic surgery specialty committee for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada, clinical lead for thoracic cancers for Ontario Health Cancer Care, lead for lung cancer screening for Ontario Health Cancer Care, and past president of the Canadian Association of Thoracic Surgeons in 2019 to 2020. She is also the senior editor for general thoracic surgery of the transition of one of the Bibles in CT surgery, Pearson's Thoracic and Esophageal Surgery Textbook, into a modern e-book, one of the most complete and authoritative online resources of cardiothoracic surgical information in the world. Her journey is remarkable. Born and raised in London, Ontario, Canada, which is about 200 kilometers or 120 miles from Toronto, Dr. Darling was the first in her family to attend university as she went to Western University in London for undergrad, medical school, internship, and general surgery residency before doing research at the National Cancer Institute, then thoracic surgery fellowship at the Mayo Clinic, and then to the University of Toronto. Today's episode will take you through her perspectives and thoughts overcoming the challenges of shattering of glass ceilings, the constant changes in the practice of thoracic surgery, and the need to adopt a growth mindset in the quest for excellence in all that we do. Join us for today's Same Surgeon, Different Life. 
Hello, loyal listeners. Uh, welcome to another podcast of Same Surgeon, Different Light. I'm your host, uh, Tom Varghese, and I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the leading lights in our profession, uh, Dr. Gail Darling, who uh, currently is at the University of Toronto, but she's going to be telling us later on during this podcast about the new position that she's going to be moving to there in Canada. Dr. Darling, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you for inviting me and those that kind introduction. That's my head's swelling right now. No, no, no. Well deserved. <laughs> well, let's get to it. You have a quite an unusual background. And the reason why I say that is the vast majority of physicians around the world typically come from families of physicians, meaning that there have been family members who are physicians or their parents were physicians. Let us uh, uh, get some insight into your upbringing in terms of your amazing family, but the fact that you don't come from a family of physicians. Well, no, I, I very, very ordinary upbringing, uh, you know, working dad, stay at home mom. And, you know, that was sort of it. I, I, I credit my grade 12 English teacher with uh, getting me into medicine. She, when I was, you know, grade 12, thinking about what I was going to do, she said, have you ever thought about medicine? And I went, no. And she said, well, you should think about it. <laughs> So was that something because she saw something in you in terms of uh, a drive or class excellence? Or why did she say that? I, you'd have to ask her. I, I don't know. At that, that <laughs> point, I was at that point, I was planning to uh, study English in university. <laughs> so I, but, I don't know. But, but, but your, your father was an accountant. And, uh, but your mother, even though she was a stay-at-home uh, uh, mom, worked as a nurse at one point. Is that correct? She did. She trained as a nurse and worked briefly as a nurse. But, you know, in those days, uh, you know, women generally stayed home, looked after the children. And so that's what she did. And then my sister is a nurse. Wow. And then, of course, you, you have a brother also who's an accountant. That's great. Yeah, he's, he's passed, but he kind of followed in my father's footsteps, although he always said he wanted to be a doctor, but he didn't have very good grades, so it didn't wow. go anywhere. But then you were the first person in the family to attend university. Uh, is, I mean, tell us about that. I mean, that is a, a big challenge for a lot of kids at that age about embarking on a path that no other people in the family haven't done. Is that correct? Yes. I, you know, I, to be honest, I never thought twice about it. It's just sort of what I was going to do. And it, it didn't, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know. I, we, our family background was we weren't very well off. My father's family in particular, my, we were okay, but we weren't wealthy by any means, but you know, in Canada, university is relatively inexpensive. And I think I paid, uh, my tuition for my last year in medical school was like 600 and some dollars. That was very Jeez. cheap. <laughs> That's it was amazing. a long time ago. It was a long time no, ago. But still, I mean, it is, uh, it's, uh, it's mind boggling about the amount of debt that many yeah. of our students and uh, individuals have here in the United States. That's, that's a very important point. Yeah, uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. But so you grew up, uh, you were born in London, Ontario, grew up there. And yes. then you ended up attending Western University in London, Ontario. Itself. Yes, yes. Uh, but then you then ended up being entrenched there for quite a period of time because you went for undergrad, med school, internship, in and general surgery residency all there at Western University. Is that yes, 
Yeah, well, it's a good, it was a good school and I was like a hometown girl and, you know, you know, they, it's a little different than the U.S. People in Canada tend to kind of stay put generally. And certainly, you know, if you're applying to surgery as a woman in those days, I think you would, you know, it was advantageous for them to know you like, so for me to go away and do an internship somewhere else and then try to come back, it was suggested that was not a good strategy. So I didn't do it. I hear you. Tell us about what sparked that interest in surgery, because again, it was your 12th grade teacher who told you about medicine in general, but then was it, was it experiences in medical school or what, what, what really tipped you off into? Yeah. When I, when I started medical school, I thought I was going to be a family doctor. And then when I was a third year clinical clerk, I did my surgery rotation and that was it. I just loved it. And I, that, that was the end of family practice. I hated internal medicine. Um, <laughs> you, know, you rounded endlessly. Nothing ever happened. Every day the patients were the same. They made no progress. You made the same comments every morning, every afternoon. You wrote long notes. Nothing ever happened. In surgery, you know, you made rounds in the morning. You went to the OR. Things happened. You went to the emergency room. You made things happen. Uh, people got better. They went home. You made a difference. And I obviously I like the pace and the, and the other thing, you know, it's the people, right? You feel like you're more aligned with that group of people than, you know, the plotting internists, at least in my internal, I'm sure that's not true of all internal medicine rotations, but I I like the people on surgery. I I like the way they thought about things. I liked pace and birds of a feather, you know, birds of a feather. Well, well, tell us about how you ended up at the NIH, because, you know, as you correctly pointed out, home, homegrown girl, you were very yeah. comfortable in those surroundings at Western University, but then you ended up at the NCI specifically doing research with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Norton. How did that yeah. come about? Well, I, um, I realized that if I didn't do a fellowship or research or something, I was going to end up in a community hospital doing you know, inguinal hernias and maybe a few gallbladders if I was lucky. And it just, that was a very unappealing future for me. So I thought I've got to, I've got to do something else. Like I've got to, like I was hoping to get a job back at Western and I thought I've got to bring value add, right? They're not going to just recruit me because I'm a good surgeon. Even if I never did any research or anything that, that was, you had to have the entry criteria. So I was thinking about it and I did a year of research and I thought, you know, like maybe this is, you know, something I'd like to pursue. And one of my residents, my senior residents had gone down to NIH and done their uh, clinical associate program. And uh, I don't know if you know, but they do six months clinical, 18 months of research. And he said, you know, but there's a better job. There's this job putting in Hickman's and Portacaths, and you do that on one morning a week, and the rest of the time you do research. So you don't have to do this clinical rotation, which he didn't think was that great. So I got that job. So that's how I ended up there, because I wanted I wanted to try out uh, a research career and whether it suited me or not. And I turned out I was pretty good at putting in Hickman's and Portacaths. So pretty soon it wasn't just one morning a week. It was two mornings a week. It was, you know, a few other... I put in like 400 in two years, uh, mind, mind numbing. Uh, the research didn't go that well. I got allergic to the rats and I, I thought, oh, <laughs> I, I just, I don't think this is for me. Anyway, it was a good experience. I learned, I learned stuff. I learned a lot. I, I proceeded 
the molecular age, you know, northern blots and western blots and southern blots were just coming in. Fortunately, not my year. So I was infusing rats with TNF alpha and then sacrificing them and freezing them and grinding them up and analyzing them. It wasn't very elegant. Anyway, that's what I did. And I decided that wasn't for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, to your credit, I mean, trying out those new experiences and trying to find the value. I love that phrase that you said about value add. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, because I think that it's it's something that a lot of people um, uh, don't don't appreciate uh, that when you're when you're going for interviews or when you're going for job applications, everybody's an elite candidate. I mean, and how do you differentiate it? It often is that value add. It's a, it's a brilliant perspective, but (laughs) it it was at this time then, I mean, obviously then you, uh, you know, finish your thoracic training and then you, uh, that thoracic training though was done at the Mayo clinic. So now again, another different location. I mean, you went from the NCI to the Mayo clinic there in Rochester, Minnesota, being trained by the elite, obviously in the world. Uh, Tell us about that experience. How, how was Rochester, Minnesota for you? Oh, well, <laughs> so I, I ended up doing that because I, the people in London wanted me to come back and do thoracic surgery. And so they helped me identify places to train and, uh, you know, Tr- Toronto and Mayo were probably the only places at that time that had a focused general thoracic training program. Everybody, well, in the U S for sure, it was all cardiac, uh, cardiothoracic. And Mayo had already been approved by the Royal College in Canada for thoracic training based on their training model. So I knew that I could get my Royal College certificate if I trained there. And to be honest, Toronto didn't have an opening the year I was applying. And since the lab wasn't going so well, I didn't really want to wait. (laughs) So I went to Mayo and it was great. I had fantastic training. I worked hard. I did a lot of operating. I think it was a tremendous operative experience. I wouldn't say Rochester, Minnesota was my favorite place though. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot over there. Uh, And for the listeners, I I say that in jest because both Dr. Darling and I have wonderful colleagues at the Mayo Clinic that we like to make fun of that. that, Yes, they have an elite place, but Rochester, Minnesota isn't exactly the greatest place in the world to visit, but it's a different place. Well, they say it's a there. great place to raise children, which I've, I have learned me translates to boring, but <laughs> this is great. I think we're, both of us are going to get in trouble for this podcast. No <laughs> you can have those. <laughs> but that's, so. that's fantastic. <laughs> but it, it was interesting because you went there thinking that this would give you the odds on uh, or at least the angle to get back to London, Ontario. But then your first job was actually at, in a hospital that was affiliated with the University of Toronto, correct? Right. So I learned uh, something when we I was in Washington at NIH, and that is I love the big city. So, you know, when I went to Rochester, I thought, oh, it'd be more like going home to London. And then I realized I really liked Washington way better than I liked Rochester. Yeah. So that got me thinking, but they, the, the, the real thing that happened was I had a friend who was in Toronto at the Wellesley Hospital, which was a small university affiliated hospital. And I'd written to him, you know, sent him a Christmas card or something. And he said, what are you doing in Rochester? I said, I'm doing thoracic surgery. And he said, oh, we need a thoracic surgeon. Why don't you come and look? 
I'm like, no, I'm committed to go to London. You know, I'm not. He said, no, just come and look. So I did. And it was going to be a full-time thoracic job. The job in London was combined general surgery and thoracic surgery. So a little less appealing. And then to be honest, the people in London kind of dropped the ball on arrangements, you know, office or time, that sort of stuff. And the other thing was that there are three hospitals in London and the, the thoracic surgery was largely done at Victoria Hospital. The job I was being offered was at St. Joseph's Hospital and the group, the, the head at Victoria didn't really want to have a thoracic division at the other, at St. Joe's. So it wasn't the most friendly environment. It would have been fine, but, you know, I didn't feel like the warm and fuzzy, you know? Yeah. And, and the Wellesley, they like loved me. They wanted me there and, you know, come and, and so I thought, fine. And, you know, Toronto was very appealing because, you know, my Washington experience. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in Toronto. And I, so I started. That, no, that, that, that's amazing because to have those insights so early on in your career is unusual. I mean, you know, even the comments that you just made about things like, well, I, I saw that they dropped the ball with, in terms of OR time and office space and things like that. You know, these are the things that we're learning about now are critical for fresh grads to really appreciate and take a look at, you know, yeah. the things that impact your day-to-day life. But you were able to pick that up right away. I mean, that, that's incredible. Well, I have to tell you that it turns out that the Wellesley didn't figure out the office space either. <laughs> at least, at least <laughs> I, had no happy. I had an OR day. You had an OR day. And the trade-off for not doing general surgery was being on call for thoracic 24-7, 365 oh, days a year. <laughs> but I sort of did that at Mayo because in those days you did that. Uh, so I thought that's fine. I can do that's that. That's fine. It's a continuation. <laughs> as well. Tell us about your family. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you've made mention before in, in past interviews about how being a woman in, uh, in surgery in those days was really, really challenging. I mean, it, it, this is the days where, I, I mean, there were barriers, but the, they were, you know, trying to climb massive mountains and even some of the discrimination you got where being pregnant was considered to be a, a huge negative for you. I mean, I, would you yeah. be able to shine some light on some of the things that yeah. you, you faced back I, then? I think that, um, you know, in those days, being a woman, you you just put your head down and worked hard and did your best and had to be better than the guys and don't uh, make a big deal about being female or wanting to have a family. Like, you know, they ask, would ask you, are you planning to get married? Are you planning to have children? Which, of course, you're not allowed to do anymore. And, you know, I kind of dodged that by saying, well, I'm not planning on having children right away. And I didn't, you know, we have very generous maternity leave for our residents. I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but they can take three months off without lengthening their training. And they think that's a great thing to do because they're being paid and, you know, it's a it's a good time off. But when they go back to work, they're, they have no control on their life, on their schedule, their residence again. And so my general advice to women here who ask about, should you have children during residency or, or wait, you know, my, I waited, but I think, I still think they should wait because, because you don't have any control. Once you go back to residency, you're, you know, you're working long hours and, you know, depending on your childcare, of course. So I think that for women having 
children now in who are surgeons, the main message is, you know, having good child, good, reliable child, child care. I generally think it's better to wait until you're in practice because at least then you have some control on your life and on your schedule. Yeah. But, you know, obviously the clock is ticking. So, you know, it's not, you, you know, can't always wait. Right. Correct. And then I think, you know, we're always juggling about, you know, your, your commitment to your patients and your, your career and your commitments to your children. And, you know, you, you always think, well, you know, oh, my patient needs me, but you know, there are other doctors, there are other surgeons, and sometimes your, your child really needs you and you have to make that choice. And I didn't always do it the right way. I have to say, I, I, and I think most women who are mothers, women surgeons who are mothers have a lot of guilt about, about the juggling. And so you have to really think about every day, every week, what's the priority, you know, your kids need you this time, not that so much next time. But I also think that when they're babies, you think you need to be there, but you probably don't need to be there as much as when they get a little older. Um, they really need you more as they get older and they need to, you need to be available when they're ready, not necessarily on your schedule, but on their schedule. And that's hard. Yeah. It's, it's almost like you have to have that very supportive village around you at all times yep. uh, to, to, to navigate the sadly, some of the unexpected things that happen in our profession, correct? Yeah, yeah, you do. You need a lot of support. And yeah. um, having a supportive partner is also, you know, very helpful. I actually didn't really. So <laughs> you can do it. But um, it's, uh, it's a challenge, for sure. I, I hear you. But, but even your career is interesting that the first part of your career took a little bit of turns from external factors, because the thing is, is that you were with the Wellesley Hospital that was affiliated with the University of Toronto. Then you were at Mount Sinai, which is part of the University of Toronto health system. And then they became all formally part of the thoracic surgery division at the University of Toronto. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, not quite. Not quite. Mount, Mount Sinai would say they're, they're a different health system. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to offend anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was by myself at the Wellesley, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year. And I got approached to join uh, two surgeons at the Mount Sinai. And also there was word on the street that the Wellesley was going to be closing because uh, there was this thing called restructuring commission and the government was trying to close down and small hospitals and amalgamate to save money, of course. And the Wellesley was going to be on the chopping block. And, and uh, so I was looking for a job. Yeah. So I went to the Sinai and joined uh, the two surgeons there, Michael Johnston and Alan Kassanen. We had a great, great time. And then as part of this restructuring commission, they decide, and the Mount Sinai is across the street from the Toronto General. And the restructuring commission thought it was silly to have two thoracic divisions across the street from one another. So that's how I got to the Toronto General. And I always say I got in through the back door. <laughs> that they, they wouldn't hire me up front when I came back to Toronto, but uh, they ended up with me. <laughs> that's amazing. And then, of course, your incredible career at the, at the University of Toronto. Um, and for the listeners, uh, especially our U.S. listeners who may not be aware or not, I mean, the University of Toronto was really one of the 
significant birthplaces of the specialty of general thoracic surgery and leading lights, the incredible training platforms, phenomenal professors like you, Dr. Darling. Tell us about how that experience was. I mean, I know that you, you joke and say you got in through the back door, but yeah. you were part of this elite, uh, you know, environment in terms of the best yeah. professors, the best environment, uh, incredible case volumes. Tell, tell us about your perspectives over the years. Well, it's, uh, it's a great place to practice for sure. You know, we have a separate division of thoracic surgery, separate from cardiac, and, and the training has been separate for years. And, you know, I have a great group of colleagues. We get along incredibly well. We've, we've been able to, because we're a fairly large group, we've been able to kind of have our area of focus. So, uh, you know, in the latter part of my career, I focused on esophageal diseases but in the beginning, I did everything, you know, the metastatic work, the, you know, I did tons of lung cancer, post-induction therapy and so on. But it's a very dynamic, driven, driven is the right word. <laughs> and you have to be driven to be there. Like, you know, you, you can't just want to do the same thing day in and day out. You, you need, you always, all of us are wanting to advance the specialty and, and, you know, so for example, learning vatsalobectomy, I didn't train in vatsalobectomy, but it was like clear to me that was the way to go. And I learned how to do vatsalobectomy and the same with invasive esophagectomy. And I came back to my research. I didn't in the beginning have the questions. And as you know, I matured and had more experience, I, I, I developed question. I, I thought of questions I wanted to ask. And I also realized that you know, you can operate on one patient at a time, but if you do a clinical trial, you can maybe advance the care of a lot of patients. Um, and, and it's a very nurturing environment for that sort of thing. What's our, our mantra, the, 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 part, the division of thoracic surgery the, at uh, U of T, the mantra is what's next? Okay, we've done that, what's next? You know, we've done a single lung transplant, let's do a dungle. You know, that, that kind of thinking is... It's just the day-to-day, -day, that's what we do. And the other wonderful thing about our group is we're not competitive. Like we're not competing with each other for, for patient volumes. We're not competing with each other for dollars. We're not competing with each other for, you know, kind of academic stature. You know, Dr. Pearson, who started the division, his philosophy was, you know, nurture us all, will all do well. And that looks good on the division. And as the leader, it looks good on him. And, and that has continued. So, you know, when, when Dr. Kashavji took over and Dr. Waddell and now Dr. Yasufuko, it's, it's very much a team and, and we're not competing with each other. We're, you know, we kind of enjoy the fact that we're all being successful and uh, that's, it's a great environment. That's incredible. There are a couple pearls of wisdom. I, I love, I lo absolutely love that. What's next, that continuous improvement, not resting on your laurels, always moving forward. And frankly, I mean, Dr. Pearson's insights, I mean, that was well ahead of its time because yeah. you and I both know that, especially in our specialty, how cutthroat it can be in terms yeah. of the head-to-head -head competition. And even within your own university or within your own groups around the world, there's like significant head-to-head -head competition, but the, yes. the University of Toronto chose not to do that, that 
Uh, I love that nurturing environment. Everybody thrives. Yeah. Uh, that that well ahead of its time. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, are is that are those the traits then you seek in the trainees that you select uh, that you recruit to the training program? Um, I don't know. Canadian trainees tend to be a little. Uh, they're all nice. <laughs> yeah, they're all nice for Canadians. Uh, we're looking. <laughs> we're looking for people who want to be excellent at what they're doing, and whether they're academically focused and they're looking to do, you know, research or whatever. We we actually don't. We don't select for that. We, you know, we've trained lots of fabulous community-oriented surgeons. So, you know, we're really looking for people who are excellent and um, they're intelligent. They've got good skills. They're, they're motivated. They're committed to the care of their patients and to their specialty. So that's, that's what we look for in trainees. I will say about Dr. Pearson, you know, Dr. Pearson was a people person and he, he did general practice before he did thoracic surgery or before he did general surgery. And I think that that uh, really stuck with him and he would always know people's names and he would remember that they had a, you know, dog or, you know, that their sister lived in, you know, the West coast. And he paid attention to those people details. And, and I, I like that. I personally, I like that. And I like to practice that way. And, and I think I'm a people person also. I, I think, we as individuals are important and it's not just a lobectomy or it's not just a lung cancer case. And, and I think that in medicine, you know, we're, we're a little bit guilty of the business of medicine as opposed to the art of medicine. And I, I think Dr. Pearson really had the art of medicine down pat. He, he, he knew what was important. And I, I think it's amazing that probably one of the, uh, at least in my opinion, one of the most significant accomplishments that you've achieved in your in your life is the fact that you've been personally responsible for this reboot of Dr. Pearson's textbook. I mean, it was outdated and that you not only helped shepherd all of us towards updating <laughs> this chapter, we, we know how hurting cats is in academic surgery. But, but the fact that also translating that into this new platform as an e-textbook. Uh, tell us how you got involved in the project and some of the things that you learned along the way. Well, um, some years ago, there was a debate at the General Thoracic Surgery Club between Era Reparation and Rick Fines about the textbook. And Era, of course, was promoting an e-book and because he recognized that that's how, that's the way of our trainees now. They don't pull out a book from the shelf. They go to the internet and they look Dr. Google, you know? So he thought having an ebook was the way to go. So he, I think, started it. And then I got involved when uh, at another general thoracic surgery club meeting, Alec Patterson tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, you know, how, how would you like to be the editor of Pearson's? And I'm like, wow, what an honor. Like, how could you say no to that? Like you, right. I could not say no. And I was very excited about the ebook and, and the possibilities of the ebook and the, the incredible flexibility and, and utility of the ebook. Um, and I think if you've got one of those books, you can see like, you know, you click on the star and you go to that, there's that reference. And then you click on the reference and there's the paper. And it's just astonishing. And plus it doesn't weigh 500 pounds. 
<laughs> That's true. But there, there obviously were some growing pains through this transition, you know, of this. Of, yes. I, I think I, I, I laughingly joke as my image is like you got, you know, Moses coming down Mount Arafat with the Ten Commandments and they're trying to translate that into, you know, some, some format that people can use. I mean, I, mean I, I say that in jest, but there are probably some elements of truth to that as well. Well, yeah, the... Um... I think the vision was a good one to begin with, but then it took us a while to find the right platform. And that really was the source of some delays, I think, in getting the book out until we found the UPUB platform, which has turned out to be terrific. And, and of course, there's, there is that part about getting authors to get their chapters in and how many emails you can write. And you sort of realize that they start not responding. <laughs> And you think, yeah, maybe that's one's not coming. So we did have to reassign some chapters, people who just were non-responsive. In the end, we've got them all in. And I think there's one or two that aren't posted yet, but they are almost uh, posted. But basically the book is there. And our next uh, step is to ensure that it will be kept up to date. And I've recruited quite a few new editors with the idea that everybody will have a very small number of chapters to basically review on an annual basis. And most of those chapters will be fine from year to year to year. The odd one will need updating almost yearly. Like for example, the, the, the ones on, um, you know, chemotherapy, for example, for lung cancer. Correct. Which keeps to be, it seems to be changing every two or three months. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> So the person responsible for that chapter only has two chapters, <laughs> whereas most of the others have like, you know, somewhere between eight and 10. So that's, that's work that is just about to start. And then the other thing that we're still missing are the video clips. So some of the authors included uh, video in their chapters. We're looking to have little video clips. Now there's a lot of video available like on CTS net, we're trying to sort out the licensing and that sort of thing to maybe link with that. But, you know, if you're a, a trainee, you probably want to know exactly how do you get around the pulmonary artery branch doing a VATS right up lobectomy. And what you always see in those videos is the stapler across the artery, not yeah. how you got around it. Uh, how you got around it, they don't tell you. That's that's no. a, Right? Very, yeah. uh, that's profound insight. You're absolutely correct. So that's uh, that's my other goal is to get those those little bits of critical steps into the book. Yeah, it's, no, I, I just it's I marvel at the the brilliance of the the e platform because you're absolutely correct. I mean, you just said it. You can update the information um, so that it's really real time information. You're not waiting for the next edition of a textbook that's coming out five years later. Exactly. Exactly, um, but then the multimedia format. They, I mean, that it'll be amazing to see those video clips embedded as well. <laughs> we, with the time I we have left, I wanted to talk about you know the other obviously significant great accomplishment you achieved while you were there at the University of uh, Toronto was bringing lung cancer screening to Ontario. Uh, it, it really is a very uh, as a model, uh, you know, screening program. A very methodical, organized you know, well connected to all the, the networks. And I suspect that that probably is one of many reasons why 
they selected you for this new position that you're embarking <laughs> on. Uh, would, you, would you like to share with our listeners the, the new position that you just agreed to that right. you'll, be, you'll be starting on January 1st? Yes, I'm going to be the um, head of surgery at Dalhousie University, which is basically the chair of surgery and other, that's called the chair elsewhere. They happen to call it the head. And I will be the head of surgery for Nova Scotia Health Central Zone. So Nova Scotia is actually a small province and they've divided it into four zones. The central zone includes Halifax, which is the capital. And so there are two large hospitals in Halifax, the Halifax Infirmary and the Victoria General, which are together the QE2. And then there's a small hospital or medium-sized hospital in Dartmouth across the harbor. And then there are two very small community hospitals. So I will be kind of the surgeon in chief for those uh, small hospitals or for that central zone, as well as being the university chair. Now, the university chair job is interesting because all the surgeons in Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and the English part of New Brunswick all have Dalhousie faculty appointments. And that's because we send trainees there, medical students and residents. So even though I'm sort of physically located in Halifax, and that's the biggest center, I actually have some outreach <laughs> to these other places. and. Um, it's a very, you know, different training situation than Toronto. Toronto's very, you know, specialist oriented. Yeah. And so our trainees go to sort of the more community oriented hospitals to get a more general, you know, approach. But in the Maritimes, you know, we really have to train people for, you know, kind of everything and still train them as specialists, but train them for everything. So this sort of distributive model of training is very, very important. I was thinking that not only that, but probably the other thing is instead of being at a centralized location where things are coming towards you, you're now in charge of a network essentially, uh, because it's not, as you correctly point out, it's not just your main hospital that you're responsible for all these other uh, affiliated institutions to 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 the university correct yeah yeah so very exciting (laughs) no i mean it's it's amazing i mean i I think that uh and that's where i think for me the natural link was how you you know mobilize everybody for the lung cancer screening because oftentimes you start thinking about that as well it's oftentimes the best screening is done in networks and not just at you know one or two places per se well you know it's um you know, because we have this uh, single payer system in each province, we have what's called Ontario Health, which is responsible for all healthcare in the province. And within Ontario Health, there are various agencies of which Cancer Care Ontario is one. And Cancer Care Ontario has a screening and prevention arm. And so I was hired by the prevention, screening and prevention arm to lead the pilot and became the program. But the model for screening is this organized screening program. And so we have organized screening for breast, cervix, and colorectal. And so that that was the goal of our pilot was to figure out how to develop an organized screening program for the province, which is very different from what happens in the U.S. where it tends to be like individual institutions. And and so that sort of systems-based approach was is kind of where we were coming from. And, and I hope to take that to Nova Scotia as well. Well, 
Uh, you and I could probably spend a long time uh, talking about a variety of different topics, but of course, we're a little bit time limited <laughs> with, with our podcast. You've already dropped a few pearls of wisdom uh, you know, throughout this interview. I, I love that concept of value add, the, the, what you said about the mantra about what's next and being people person. Any final thoughts, especially to our younger listeners as they embark on a career in thoracic surgery, uh, reflecting on all the things that you, you've experienced and uh, you've led and achieved in your career. A any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Never give in. Uh, <laughs> you know, I always said, if someone said I couldn't do anything, that was like a red flag. <laughs> Never tell me I can't do anything because I'm going to do it. But, you know, you can, you, you know, people say, oh, you can't do it all, but you can can do it all, maybe not each thing to the same extent, but don't don't be limited by what other people tell you. Like do what, you know, think about what's important to you. Think about what drives you, like what's in your DNA, like what you want to achieve, what what motivates you, what gets I always say to the trainees when they're trying to decide medicine surgery, like what gets you up in the morning? You know, and I think about myself, you know, going to the work, you know, what things I jump out of bed and I'm going to work I'm excited about and what things I'm not so excited about. And, you know, you, you can do it. I mean, these these people are all very intelligent, uh, well-educated, motivated, committed individuals who are in our specialty and don't let anything stand in your way. Amazing words of wisdom. Dr. Darling, on behalf of our listeners for Same Surgeon, Different Light, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.